Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, Theresa May sacks an old ally, but he's not going without a fight. The Prime Minister has said that she now considers that this matter has been closed and the Cabinet Secretary does not consider it necessary to refer it to the police, but we would, of course, cooperate fully should the police themselves consider that an investigation were necessary. Is a cross-party Brexit deal within reach? If we were proposing, which I very much hope we don't, to sign up to the customs union, then I think there is a risk that you would lose more Conservative MPs than you would gain Labour MPs. And has the Extinction Rebellion protest helped kickstart a new era in the UK's fight against climate change? The fact that Michael Gove cannot even commit to declaring a climate and ecological emergency at the moment is not only a political failure, we believe that's a moral failure on the behalf of our politicians. This is an emergency. And welcome to Commons People. Joining me in the studio this week is Paul War. Hi, Arge. Hi, Paul. We've also got former Downing Street National Security Advisor, Lord Peter Ricketts. Hello. Hi, Peter. And we've got the director of the Open Europe think tank, Henry Newman. Hello. Hi, Henry. Hi. Um, so we're back from our Easter podcast break with almost perfect timing as Theresa May has thrown as a huge political story with the sacking of her Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson. The former chief whip was fingered as the source of a leak from the highly confidential National Security Council about the Prime Minister's approval of Huawei's involvement in the UK's 5G infrastructure. Downing Street is now trying to shut down calls for a police investigation, including from Labour Deputy Leader Tom Watson. Let's hear him now. If he didn't do it, though, it means that somebody else has done it, which is why I think the criminal inquiry will get to the facts of this case. That's why I think the logical extension of what the Prime Minister has alleged in her letter is a criminal act has uh, taken place and the police need to examine the facts. So, Paul, how has the Hua Dunnit saga unfolded over the past couple of weeks? Well, the key thing, and this has came out last night, is a conversation that happened last Tuesday that triggered the whole thing between Gavin Williamson and Steve Swinford, who's on the Daily Telegraph, a scoopmeister on the Daily Telegraph, a great reporter, and they had a conversation. Uh, and the th- fact is that number 10 have uh, phone records which suggest that conversation lasted 11 minutes. They don't know the content of the conversation, but it's quite clear from Number 10's actions, the Prime Minister's actions last night, they think that during that phone call, Gavin Williamson talked about the National Security Council and its deliberations on Huawei. Now, Williamson's friends have told me, uh, and Williamson has spoken directly about the fact that actually uh, he says he's innocent, and that phone conversation, I'm told, was only about Brexit, and only about only, inverted commas, about the Tory leadership and other bits of political gossip. I mean, in themselves, you might say that's not exactly great for him, but he insists that it's nothing to do with the Huawei decision. 
I have to say a lot of people simply find that incredible. And if you've got a Prime Minister who's so close to someone like Gavin Williamson and has taken such a big decision, you have to say um, it's looking very difficult for him in terms of believability. Uh, but the difficult thing I, I, with, I learned this week in trying to unearth a bit of this story is that Williamson not only has a sort of lack of credibility when it comes to his, his main defence, on hearing the news, he says that the first he knew about this story is when he heard it on the Today programme. Uh, and then he walked, he marched into the Commons Tea Room where David Lidington was sitting down having breakfast and had a go at David Lidington and said, your people have leaked this, your cabinet secretariat. Now, as Peter will probably tell you, that's such a, an, a grievous um, slur on the credibility of those civil servants that, you know, obviously word gets back. And Williamson thereafter then openly said well, I, to his office, well, I did talk to Steve Swinsford and then handed over his phone and claims he's been open about the fact he talked to him. But let's be honest, a lot of people within government and certainly within Whitehall were furious. And um, Peter, can you tell us a little bit about how the Security Council, the National Security Council works and, and why this is so serious? Sure. Uh, this was set up by David Cameron when he came into government in 2010, uh, and he asked me to be the first national security advisor. It's obviously a model we've copied from the Americans, who've had it for 70 years. Uh, and the idea was to get away from the Tony Blair sofa government style informality towards a much more rigorous, systematic, weekly meeting of all the top securocrats, the ministers, the heads of intelligence, the chief of defense staff, national security advisor and others. And it only works if it's a safe space where you can bring the most sensitive stuff, you can have a real debate, you can reach a decision, and people will respect that. And this was so toxic, not because you know, it's just another leak, which goes on, you know, Paul gets leaks every day. Um, this was uh, a leak about our national security, and it was a political effort to preempt a government announcement about a policy. That's why it's totally incredible that it was civil servants doing this. Why would they put out a partial political reading of a meeting? Mm. So that is why it was toxic, and that's why I personally am glad that the Prime Minister has taken decisive action. Obviously, I haven't seen the basis of it, but it's right to protect that safe space. Uh, shouldn't this, this information have been in the public domain, though? I mean, this is was the leaker acting in the public interest? This is such an important decision for our country, uh, and shouldn't we be having the debate in the open? Well, we, will, we are already having the debate. We will have the debate. If you go on the website of the excellent National Cyber Security Centre... There is a lot of background information there about the British telecom setup and how complex it is, how the fact we already have a lot of Huawei stuff in our system now and 5G will be built on the top. And, of course, when the government produces the outcome of its review, which was the subject of this National Security Council, we'll all be, debate, be able to debate it much more openly. What's not on is to preempt that and to say, I am going to go out, whoever the individual was, and I'm going to give my account of this to stir up opposition to the decision taken in the National Security Council. That really isn't on. Now, Henry... Do you want to come in there? Yeah, but I, yeah. I used to work in the cabinet office, and exactly as Peter was saying, this is a long-standing discussion. We, I, mean, we, I remember discussing the use of uh, Huawei and other uh, Chinese technology in the government's critical national infrastructure and telecoms infrastructure way back now, sort of uh, seven, uh, eight years ago. So this isn't new. Uh, I think what was clearly, uh, clearly there was a political leak from the National Security Council. That comes on top of a lot of very, very leaky cabinets and cabinet committees. Uh, We've seen all kinds of journalists get very precise readouts. Some, of course, designed to bolster particular individuals' aspirations for themselves. Um, A shocking thing in politics. Um, (laughs) That's Tory leadership race that is 
ongoing. Let's exactly, but but also sort of anger vis-a-vis other ministers, positioning over Brexit and so on. And of course, uh, Stephen Swinford has had several quite significant uh, splashes, including on Brexit policy. Uh, and I think. As was the case with this splash, they suggested that certain cabinet ministers were against the core elements of a particular policy that the prime minister was pursuing. I don't know the details of this uh, National Security uh, Council discussion, but I do know that when it came to the cabinet discussions around Brexit, the, the story that The Telegraph reported, which I think named 14 cabinet ministers opposed to a particular decision was not the version of the events that I got from speaking to officials who were in the room and actually listened to the discussion. And anyway, cabinets don't vote. That is not, Peter will know this much better than me, but when you look at the minutes for a cabinet meeting, they always begin with the cabinet agreed, because by definition, the cabinet agreed. If you don't want to agree with the cabinet decision, you have to leave the government. That's the entire nature of collective responsibility. Uh, One sort of small uh, anecdote, I was speaking to a uh, friend who'd heard from a senior civil servant uh, before Peter's time, uh, who was discussing a leak uh, when, with the, the then cabinet secretary. And the cabinet secretary exploded about a leak inquiry that had been launched and said, we can't have a leak inquiry. We don't know who's leaked it yet. So this is nothing <laughs> particularly new. Um, but it's been, I think it's just one other sort of element of this, which I think is interesting, that Penny Mordaunt is now promoted into the uh, Defence Department, and she's somebody who clearly the Prime Minister trusts much more. Um, and she's now the first female Defence Secretary, which is a significant glass ceiling broken. I think it's important in of itself, but also um, it's, a, it's obviously a crucial job, especially in a Tory government. And Rory Stewart, joins the cabinet. And he has, I think, a very interesting backstory, uh, obviously involved in a lot of international affairs, also teaching at Harvard, where he ran the car centre. But he's also been, I think, very importantly, extremely loyal and doughty defender of the Prime Minister's Brexit plan. So she's actually, remarkably, exerting a little bit of patronage, which he's been very bad at, typically. One thing that Henry said, uh, which I, uh, I think is really important and is part of the reason why the security community in the UK reacted so much against this leak, was because it looked like political infighting in the cabinet spilling over into our national security decision making. Mm. And that's, you know, that really worried people. So uh, I think for all those reasons, the idea of decisive action uh, was really important. But Peter, what do you make of the fact that, I mean, this is not just Gavin Williamson's colleagues who are saying this, but that actually they're worried that that Mark Sedwell has too much power and that it's unconstitutional. That the fact that you've someone who is doing your job is also cabinet <coughs> secretary, and that situation has existed not just as a temporary fix, as it was necessary last year when Jeremy Haywood sadly passed away, but actually it's continued since since then. Mm. And do you feel any unease about that? I mean, that there is a wider issue here about, regardless of separately from this Huawei incident, about whether or not the prime minister is putting too much power in the hands of one person. Well, I'm not so much worried about the power, but I'm worried about the bandwidth, yes. Uh, I mean, Mark is fantastically able, and he's been a friend of mine for 20 years. I declare that. Um, Nonetheless, I think we need more brain power rather than less at the centre of government at the moment. I can understand why, uh, after Jeremy sadly died very suddenly, uh, he was asked to fill both roles, a double hat. Um, I would have hoped that fairly quickly they would have said, of course, there will be a new national security advisor appointed soon. Mm. Haven't done that yet. I suspect the prime minister doesn't want, you know, more changes of personnel at the centre, you know, when we're in this major national crisis. I personally would feel more comfortable if there were two heads uh, where there had been before. I certainly found it was a full-time job and more, yeah. mm. and I know the cabinet secretary job is as well. So one individual can't give their full attention to both. They have to delegate. Uh, and right now, I mean, it seems to me that we ought to be setting up uh, a process to appoint a new And on this key question of, of a criminal inquiry, do you think actually, I mean, you know from the inside how difficult it is 
to have outside uh, police in pr- prosecution, never mind investigation of what's happened so internally within working of Whitehall. Do you think actually there is a credible case for that? Cressida Dick this morning has suggested that it's up to the Cabinet Office to make a referral. It's not up to her to unilaterally come in and do it. She needs a referral from the Cabinet Office. Would your advice be that there should be that referral? Well, it's sensitive ground, obviously. I, first of all, I have full confidence that a professional job was done by Mark Sedwell as an, and his investigators. This is not some vendetta or grudge match between personalities. That It's trivialising it to say that. Um, I can understand why the police are reluctant to come in. On the other hand, on the face of it, this was um, a criminal act. This was a breach of the Official Secrets Act. Uh, and um, I'm old enough to remember that when I was a Jeffrey Howe private secretary in the 1980s, a young clerk was uh, arrested for leaking secrets to about Greenham Common uh, and was jailed. So there are precedents for criminal uh, investigation follow-up. I think it's very hard to judge. I mean, if he had confessed and, and accepted and that you know, it was done and dusted, then maybe one could have said it's closed. The fact that Gavin Williamson is contesting it so vigorously suggests it's not yet a done deal and a, you know, a finished job. So maybe it would be right at some point to ask the police to come in and see whether there are charges, and it would be for the Director of Public Prosecutions to decide whether there were. And that would be completely unprecedented. I remember back when I was in the Justice Department at the time of the referendum uh, in 2016, there was a leak inquiry launched where the, uh, I think the, certainly at the time, I can't remember whether it went through fully or not, but the uh, Director of Communications was threatening to involve the police and the, and the agencies. Um, and then in the end, the leak inquiry was abandoned. But I don't think it would be totally unprecedented to have that. Uh, that. And that wasn't on a secret matter. That was on a, uh, a much more uh, mundane issue. It's going to run and run. I think we can all agree. That's for sure. <laughs> um, Now, on another day, Theresa May's suggestion to the liaison committee that she could concede to Labour demands for a customs union after Brexit would have been the top story, possibly. (laughs) Um, Let's hear Tory former Minister Ed Vasey's thoughts on how a customs union concession might affect the deadlock in Parliament. That is always always the danger of her talking to Jeremy Corbyn, that having got actually quite a long way in getting Conservative MPs to support her withdrawal agreement in three attempts by moving to a compromise with Jeremy Corbyn, that narrow group now will then re-expand. So it's like playing whack-a-mole, isn't it? Suddenly you get you get one group of MPs on side and you lose another. Paul, we've both been picking up a lot more optimism about these cross-party Brexit talks yeah. with Labour. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that is just spin, though, to be honest. I mean, um, it's in both the Prime Minister's interest and Jeremy Corbyn's interest to, to for these talks to continue, for obvious reasons. For Jeremy Corbyn, he can string things out beyond the local elections and probably the European elections. From the Prime Minister's point of view, um, she needs to string it out a bit more, mainly because it makes it look as though um, something is happening, rather than what is really happening was a sense of stagnation within, within government. Um, having said that... You know, Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman after PMQs yesterday came up with this extraordinary phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to customs union. And that's what's being considered within government. He said we have, quotes, clear evidence that the government are shifting their position. Mm. That's much more open and forthcoming than Labour have ever been. Now, did he do that deliberately? Was that, again, a part of management expectations? I'm not sure. What what seemed to confirm it was the Prime Minister's evidence at the Liaison Committee where she did indeed talk about, you know, there are different ways you can describe a customs union. Um, And Henry knows much more about the detail of this, about how feasible it is, whether there's any real landing zone here at all. But politically, I think the real problem for Corbyn is, even if there were some kind of compromise solution... 
he risks splitting his party as much as the Prime Minister. And particularly given the row this week over the second referendum, um, and two-thirds of Labour MPs are now committed to saying, look, we will agree to a possible Brexit deal, but only on condition that it goes back to the public. I think, will Jeremy Corbyn take that risk? I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not, I mean, I, I'm not convinced either, necessarily, but I think these talks are very interesting in lots of ways. There was a lot of Conservative anger when they were first launched, but I thought it was entirely unsurprising. In fact, it had been Vote Leave's position to approach Brexit on a cross-party basis. I think everybody thinks the Prime Minister made a mistake after the 2017 election in not reaching across the aisle. I mean, I don't uh, subscribe to Corbyn's version of Labour, and I'd rather that the Labour Party wasn't led by somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, but that's my view. Um, but it's not also not something that the Conservative Party, in any respect, can control. And Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the opposition, so I think it's not that surprising that in a hung parliament, you end up speaking to the leader of the opposition if you can't find a majority within your own party. The Prime Minister, if you take a step back, managed to persuade ultimately 90% of Conservatives to back her deal in some form. Uh, and she hasn't been able to persuade that last 10%. And I don't think she will be able to really, maybe a few more, but that, you know, what else do you do at this stage? And there's an unreality in all the debate because, of course, there is a customs union, at least in the, the medium term, at the heart of the current deal within the backstop. And that's why a lot of Conservatives don't like it. The Labour Party don't want to admit that and pretend that they, don't, they have fundamental problems with the deal when they really are admitting at the same time that they wouldn't change any elements of the withdrawal agreement. So... I think the other thing that's been interesting for me about these talks is the Prime Minister has been standing up and saying, look, actually, there's a lot that we agree on. And when she lists those things, one of the things that she lists is ending free movement. And I think as long as the Labour Party remain technically committed to ending free movement, we're talking about a landing zone for Brexit outside of the single market. So we're not Norway, we're somewhere further out. And within that, we're really talking then about a narrow range of options. Within any negotiated agreement, you're going to have to leave via the withdrawal deal, which is going to include the backstop. So you have to find alternative solutions in the medium term, not immediately. So I mean, the, the, the range of disagreement is relatively narrow on the substance. On the politics, of course, it's a much bigger problem. Um, Peter, what do you make of Jeremy Corbyn's kind of refusal to back a confirmatory referendum outright? Well, uh, I find it hard to understand because it seems to me to be an open goal for the Labour Party that, uh, you know, we saw that the million people on the march, we saw the six million people signing the petition. You know, there is uh, a big constituency in the country that is not very well represented at the moment uh, by, by the position of the two parties. I mean, I really follow this from the position of, of what the other Europeans are thinking. You know, they gave us six months. The time is ticking away. And by the time you subtract the summer holidays and the party conference season, you know, it's, it's tomorrow morning, actually, mm. the end of October. Uh, and we're still, you know, in the trenches between the two parties, not at all clear whether they're going to reach agreement or not. It looks to me like we're going to have the European Parliament elections. Yes. That will change the political landscape. And the Europeans sit there waiting. If we could come up with some variation of this customs union, which is, which is not an enormous change, as mm. you say, from the existing deal, you could put it into the future framework. You wouldn't necessarily have to reopen that legal text of the withdrawal agreement. And I think the Europeans would be very willing to, to get back to work, roll mm. up their sleeves and do that fairly quickly. They know about customs unions. You know, it's something off the shelf which they can more or less um, deliver us a, a model. But what they won't do, I think, is accept that another six months is going to pass. Then we will arrive in October. Then we will ask for a further extension. I think, honestly, patience will have run out. Do you think they won't, accept, they won't allow a Well, I don't extension? think... I mean, Macron, you know, was hard enough to persuade for, right. for this six months. And I think if they can't show that they've used it, you know, constructively, why would the Europeans drag on? By that time, they'll have British MEPs sitting in, in the European Parliament, no doubt making all kinds of trouble. I think they will just want us 
out if we mm. haven't been able to agree in this experiment. So I think, I think that's, that's definitely uh, a growing concern. I, I know speaking to diplomats here and in Brussels, exactly as Peter said, I think there's this increasing sense of frustration. I think the six month, though, which was ultimately a compromise brokered because Macron was very reluctant to go for a long compromise, having previously, uh, the French have previously been interested in a very long extension. They then switched to wanting only a very short extension. Six months was the worst of all possible extensions. So I think that you know, sometimes we uh, have this tendency to be incredibly critical about the way that Britain has approached things. Uh, I do think that from the EU side, this was a very, very bad mistake. Either you should have given us a short extension and forced a clear cliff edge when decisions had to be made. And ultimately, there are three choices. Either you revoke Article 50 and you stop Brexit, or you leave with a deal or you don't leave with a deal. Those are the only three choices. Everything else is a dressing or a ribbon or a bow attached on top of it. Mm. And the alternative was to have a very long extension mm. where you allow for a fundamental change in political circumstances. Six months was the worst of all. And it was a classic EU compromise. Kick the can down the road without forcing a decision. You can hardly blame them, though, Henry. Well, no, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just saying that yeah. I think that this is we, we have a tendency to massively beat ourselves up and say that we have this, the worst politics in Europe. And look, I'm not trying to defend the state of British politics at the moment, but look anywhere around Europe and politics aren't that brilliant overall. And I think on this particular issue, Team Bonnier have screwed up. They, they uh, or at least they've managed to get to they, their objective through the entire negotiation was to reach a compromise settlement that could be could get through British politics. We saw, unfortunately, just like we saw with David Cameron back in 2016, that the compromises that were very, very big and substantive in Brussels, the, the changes that he got during the renegotiation, fell apart on landing in Westminster. And unfortunately, that's what happened with this deal overall, that it's something that worked in the theory of Brussels and was actually quite clever overall. The backstop basically gives the UK something close to a goods-only single market, which is exactly what everybody thought with a possible path out of the customs union. You know, it, it was a brilliant scheme. It's probably more than anybody could have anticipated getting at the start of the negotiations, but then disintegrated on contact with Westminster politics. At one level, of course, it's not up to Brussels to resolve the problems of Westminster politics. I'm no. not saying that. But at the same time, politics is about dealing with things as they are, not as how you'd like them to be. I mean, if we'd only made a proposition that they could have addressed and, and engaged with, things would have been better. I mean, actually, for two European summits successively, the Prime Minister basically went without a policy, and the heads of government sat around the table and came up with a policy. Uh, one was for a very short extension of a couple of weeks, and then there was this six months, which I agree was a, was a, a fudge which was unsatisfactory. But, you know, what do you expect if you go into a European summit without much of a policy of your own? I'm not defending the Prime Minister. expect <laughs> the other European leaders to make up a policy for you. Yeah. Um, right, now, since we were last in the studio, climate change has rocketed up the political agenda thanks in part to the Extinction Rebellion protests that brought parts of London to a standstill. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has now declared a climate emergency and Michael Gove has met the protesters and promised action. Let's hear 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg's thoughts on global warming. Many people think that climate change is an opinion, but it's not an opinion, it's a fact. You can't say... I don't think that the heart is pumping blood. I don't think so. It's, it's a fact. Um, Henry, Extinction Rebellion met Michael Gove this week uh, and said the meeting was mildly less shit than expected. Um, you used to be an advisor to the Environment Secretary. Can we trust him to tackle this issue? I was, an I was an advisor to Michael when he was in justice, so I don't know anything about the uh, the environment brief. I think, look, I think he takes it very seriously. I've never had a uh, shit or less than shit meeting with Michael. He's always <laughs> an extraordinarily uh, able minister who I didn't always agree with in private, but that was the point of having uh, advisors and civil servants around ministers that you disagree and you argue the issues out. And I thought he was um, an extraordinary... Uh, extraordinary uh, handling the Justice Department and changing the brief, uh, really, and changing the entire conservative position on justice. Um, and I think he's done that in a different way at uh, at DEFRA, in the Environment Department. He's put 
the climate change issue, but environment more broadly at the heart of the Conservatives' current positioning, exactly like he did really with justice uh, after the 2015 election. David Cameron appointed Gove to the Justice Department and told him to essentially deal with the problem with the judges and make justice sort of quieten down. Uh, and then within a few months, Cameron was saying that prison reform would be his legacy in politics. Um, and it, overall, when a government doesn't seem to be doing very much other than Brexit, one thing that it clearly does seem to be doing a lot of is environmental policy. And I don't think that's just because uh, it's I think that's, that's because Michael's been able to both have a vision and deliver that division within inside the Department of uh, Environment, just as he has in other departments. On the overall question of Extinction Rebellion, uh, I mean, I think, like, obviously, I'm, I, I don't know any of the details of that meeting, uh, and I'm not particularly surprised that uh, they were, uh, I think their, their expectations about what it's possible to achieve in the short term are slightly unrealistic. And I think that clearly um, any government of any sort, I mean, the Labour Party now can run around demanding a climate emergency, fair enough, but what is actually declaring an emergency achieve? Uh, what's really required here is very big changes to policy and we need to have a proper national conversation about how we do that at the same time as allowing people to continue to travel around and work and so on and let our economy grow. Okay, so as Henry said, this needs action and the Committee on Climate Change uh, has released a big report today detailing how the UK can get to net zero emissions by 2050. What does it say, Paul? Well, it says actually that there's things government can do that actually won't be as costly as everyone thought they would do would be. For example, they say it's between 1% and 2% of GDP by 2050 is the actual overall cost of what government would, would be required to do. Now, compare that to Brexit where the cost uh, of a bump in the road, as some people call it, actually is greater than that in the short term. So it sounds as though, arguably. actually, <laughs> arguably, it, it, it sounds as though, actually, the, the Committee on Climate Change, you know, again, it's another first globally that this was set up by the Labour government and, and continued with the Tory government. Um, um, as saying something quite radical, which is actually you can use market mechanisms and that the fact that renewable costs have come right down means that we're going to get there a bit quicker, net zero emissions by 2050. Um, on an individual level, it sounds as though if we eat less red meat, fly a little less and, you know, keep the thermostat at 19 degrees. These are all the bits of practical advice that are in this report. I, I have to say, I asked the Prime Minister's spokesman today, is the PM going to eat less red meat? And he said, oh, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> but, um, but Ed Miliband is pledging to do that that kind of thing. Now, it all sounds quite easy. For a lot of people, though, obviously, they'll, they'll, they do like to fly more, not less. You know, what's the point of economic freedom if, you, if, you're, if you've if you just got it and then you can't use it? Transatlantic um, flight while eating a big steak. That's I know, <laughs> but, but even short haul. So I'm not sure just how well it's going to be pitched for the public. But what's for sure, as Henry was suggesting, is the government do have a good case to make on this. And uh, they've been trying to make it. And, and getting that heard across the extension of rebellion noise in the last week has been difficult. Peter, you were the UK ambassador to France when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed. Now, this clearly needs global action. We've got Donald Trump coming to the UK next month. Do you think Theresa May needs to put pressure on the president to rejoin the deal when he comes over? Uh, well, I would like her to, yes. I mean, in Paris, there was a real feeling of momentum. Uh, this was, what, two or three years ago, three or four years ago now. Uh, and Obama and Xi Jinping and all the world leaders were pushing, and we got an agreement, which is not uh, legally binding, but which has got some pretty powerful goals in it. Since then, honestly, the uh, heat has gone out of the subject. It's dropped out of the headlines. Other things like Brexit have come along. And in a way, it's taken Greta Thunberg and people gluing themselves to Waterloo Bridge to put it back on the British political agenda. Um, now, in good timing, this, we have this uh, Climate Change Committee report. Um, so, yes, one of the big change factors in the last two years has been Trump. Funnily enough, uh, climate 
change carbon reductions are going on in the U.S. without the federal government. The states around the U.S., um, big business around the U.S. are all for reducing carbon emissions, uh, some of the big cities. So in a way, the federal government isn't, isn't making the weather, if I can put it like that, in the U.S. <laughs> Nonetheless, I think his visit to the U.K. is a good opportunity to put some pressure on him over this, among many other things. Okay, great. Thanks very much. That's all we've got time for. No quiz this week, unfortunately. Everyone is very busy, so uh, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.